The reading is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 11, the whole chapter actually. Um, Oh, and chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in my booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us, 
and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we uh, praise you for this account that you're giving us such detail that we may learn about our own sin and the ways we need to run to you and um, be healed by you. We pray this morning that your spirit would teach us to stay present in this conversation, that we would be willing to die to our desire to run. Amen. You know, this is one of those passages that I think really does say, say the Bible's true. If it was just made up, if someone wrote this hundreds and hundreds of years later to try to prove something or, or maybe to write about a hero, um, which are some theories that are out there, why would you write about this? Why would you explain the sin and the, the downfall of David in such a way, right? And, and the reason we know that the Bible includes this is, number one, it happened, but also because it helps us understand something that's near and dear to our hearts, our sin, right? You like your sin. We all do. We like it at the moment, but then afterwards we hate it. And what most of us do is is as soon as we've confessed, if we've even done that, we tend to run, we tend to flee from it, we tend to shove it down. And what this passage is calling us to do is to bring it to the surface. So I titled the sermon, The Anatomy of a Sin, and I want you to know that the reason I believe this passage is so important this morning is that you have a target on your back if you're a Christian. The devil, the world, and your own flesh have crosshairs on you, and the way those three are conspiring to bring you down, and yes, one of those three is inside of you, is through your sin. So we have to talk about it, especially in such a a perfect passage as this. So we will do that. And I want you to just think about um, something I've talked about before is quarterbacks, athletes, people like that who make these horrible mistakes, and then they go to the sideline, and what do they do? They put their towel over their head, they ignore it. No, they pull out the iPad, they pull out the photos, and they look to find out, why did that happen? What could I have done differently? What was I seeing incorrectly? They learn from it. So David has graciously allowed, or God through David, this story to come to us that we can actually go, okay, well, 
take the pressure off of ourselves for a moment, we'll look at David's sin. And it's going to be tough. You're gonna, it's going to not be the most fun discussion. But we're going to learn the anatomy of his sin. And what we're going to find is the gospel frees us to examine our sin closely so we can flee from it. Okay? So the first thing we're going to look at is the setting. I think one of the problems uh, that I've noticed in my own life and when I talk to people about sin is we often start with the the discussion at that moment, like where the sin occurs. We don't even think about the setting. And yet we start here with David with a setting, don't we? Um, Verse 1, in the spring of the year. How many of you know what the spring of the year means? Now, this is a five-verse description of the, of the grossest sin in David's life. So every word added is there for a reason. And the writer decided to give us one more little tidbit in the time when kings go out to battle. We don't need that. I know when the spring is. Why would he say that? Because David was not doing what kings normally would do. David was not in sin at this point, but he was making a bad judgment call. He was allowing himself to be in a place that maybe was susceptible to danger. We aren't told why, but that's clear in the writing. Secondly, we find a little bit further in verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. You know, I wouldn't want those details written about me, would you? I would want it to be like, you know, after I planned a new building or called my city leaders together, I walked on the roof. No, no, no. David was lounging, maybe sleeping on his couch in the afternoon. And so what you find is I think the writer is letting us understand David allowed himself to be in a setting that was not the best for him. There's a, there's a terminology, uh, an acronym that a lot of psychologists use that's helpful called HALT. If you've ever heard of this, HALT. It's, you know, when you start to really struggle, you have an issue, one of the first questions they'll ask is this acronym HALT, hunger. Anger, loneliness, tiredness. What's being discussed is uh, when you find yourself struggling with a particular issue, have you started by looking at the setting, the disposition you're in? Recognizing that maybe rather than some huge thing, I was just tired or lonely or hungry or angry, right? So how good are we at setting up for ourselves um, the awareness of, of these situations. How aware are you of, of places, of situations, of settings, of, of even feelings that are seedbeds for your sin? Are you even aware of that? There's an, an, an author named Nate Larkin. He wrote Samson and the Pirate Monks. He struggled for years with sexual addiction. He went through a sexual addiction recovery program. And then upon doing that, he, he thought, you know, this really isn't in the church and he got, gathered men together, and they started this Samson Society. We actually have a copy in the library, which will probably be ready in 2020. So just write your name down, and we'll have it set aside for you when we unpack the books. Um, I actually have a copy as well. And I would say this. I don't recommend it without, what, how do you say this, without qualification. Though I'm not going to give that qualification right now. There are some things that make it not perfect, but it's a great book to look at. But Nate Larkin came to Fort Collins, and he did a, a, a Samson Society um, conference, and there was a Q&A, and someone was asking a really good question. How do you handle your smartphone? Like, you know, you have a smartphone, and images can come up, and you've had this, this past, and certainly that would be 
bad for you. His answer was this. I don't have a smartphone. And actually he said it this way. I can't have a smartphone. That makes most of us bristle. What? Are you legalistic? No, he's wise. Sometimes it's the godliest people, the most gospel-centered people who feel the freedom to finally say, you know what? I have the freedom to own a smartphone. It's just unwise. Wouldn't that have been great if David had said that? You know, I have the freedom to stay back and to lay on a couch when all the men are away, but I'm sort of sexually oriented, and, and that's maybe not the healthiest thing for me, so I'm going out to war. That would have been helpful. Have you named your areas? Have you given yourself the freedom to actually say something like, yeah, that's not good for me. It's that time of day. It's that location. It's that conversation. I think it's helpful. That's what mature Christianity begins to look like, and I hope we'll begin to see that if we think it's just going to be in the moment of the grossest temptation, you're going to battle it out victoriously, you're, you're, you're wrong. It's, no, 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 long before I get there, I see it coming. and I've made strategy moves. The Lord has given me through the gospel that, that ability. But secondly, there's temptation. Everybody knows what temptation is, or so you think. I want to tweak your definition a tiny bit. Um, and by the way, as I t- well, let me try to define temptation a little bit. I think it's the, it's the space between the stimulus, which is innocent. There's nothing wrong with the stimulus, right? And then the actual sin, there's this kind of space between. And what makes it so hard is you feel allure. Let's look at the passage, verse 3, or no, verse 2. It happened on the, in the afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. If he wasn't drawn to that image, then he would have just been like, oh, shouldn't look at that and walked away. But the, the text says she was beautiful, very beautiful. And, and you get the realization that David's body responded to what he saw. And that's important because the, what makes temptation so insidious is you feel, in a way, like you've crossed a line you haven't actually crossed, right? Um, and so, it's this kind of space between, right? And let, me be, let me make one little caveat. I'm not suggesting that every time you're tempted it's because of point number one, the setting. However, that leads us into a lot of temptation, right? Our, our own choice of settings, our disposition of things, hunger, thirst, etc., but point two, temptation, sometimes it's just you're doing the right thing, you're, you're walking with God, you're, you could be in a devotional, and a temptation can come like that. So be aware of that. That's why we pray and lead us not into temptation. But I'm asking you, I'm really urging you to just understand this fact, that you are being tempted before you sin. I think most of us don't even, we just glide right over. And it's, I want you to begin to name, oh, I, right now I'm being tempted. And that would be huge if that was the one takeaway from this sermon. To begin to recognize, ah, now is when I'm having that urge, that feeling in my body, in my mind, a thought, that allure. Right? I think that, uh, as you know, Jonathan before me, myself, Shane, we all all embrace uh, a, a view of grace, of the gospel, that you grow through the gospel. 
It's a beautiful theology. It's all through Scripture. It's through church history. Uh, but one of the down, I think there is a, a, a problem that has come from that theology if you're not careful, and it's the idea that, oh, so if I need to feel everything in my heart before I do it, then I should never do anything my heart's not completely in line with. So it would be inauthentic right now to not follow my heart into a sin because my heart wants the sin. Does that make sense? Sort of like if I have to fight or if I have to stop, then, then it's really inauthentic. So what I'll do is I'll just cross the line and then I'll ask for forgiveness and that's how I'll be sanctified. Well, that's not how the Bible tells us to be sanctified. In fact, the Bible calls you to fight and, and, and it's either you're going to always give in to temptations, right? Or you're going to say, oh, I was tempted and I didn't, I didn't have to do it because my heart wasn't in that. Well, then you weren't tempted, right? If your heart didn't want the thing, then it wasn't a true temptation. So the Bible calls us to fight. And you see that in Hebrews 12:4, where the writer says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. Referring, of course, to Jesus, who was tempted. That means he really did desire to not have to go and have the wrath of God poured on him. Yet he resisted to the point of shedding blood, anguish, fighting. Do you fight? Are you a fighter? Is that, that, that's got to be part of your daily, I believe, your daily Christian life is that not only am I not avoiding, I want to avoid the settings, but I want to be aware of these temptations, and I want, to, I want to avoid those sins. I want to fight. So now we come to our definition, the third point of sin. I want to draw your attention to the front of our worship guide. Um, I didn't tell Dan this, so you have to look at your physical copy. Sorry, Dan. And I can't find the front. There it is. It has the image on it. I just want you to see a quick, two quick thoughts on sin. The first, what is sin? The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it this way. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So God's way is perfection. And either, you know, anytime we don't conform to it or we transgress against his law, that's a sin. And it's hard because you might think, well, when am I not doing that? Like, when am I ever perfect? But it's important that we, before we go there, we recognize we do particular things that are sinful. And here's a great way to figure that out. There are things you don't want to tell people about or you're not proud of. You know, you're, things you're kind of hoping to stay hidden or that no one will call you on the carpet for. Thoughts you would never want to have expressed. Right? Moments, if they were on a video, you'd be undone. That, that's sin. Okay? But let's look at Richard Lovelace's definition. He goes, in its biblical definition, sin cannot be limited to isolated instances or patterns of wrongdoing. So he's saying, in addition to these particular things that we all know, there's this underlying issue. He says, it's something much more akin to the psychological term complex, an organic network of compulsive attitudes, beliefs, and behavior deeply rooted in our alienation from God. Right? Keller says every sin you commit is your, in that moment, you're being a practical atheist. You can't sin and say, I love God at the same time. Now, you may actually love God, and He, of course, loves you if you're in Christ, but, but nonetheless, you can't say you're loving God while you're engaging in sin. So let's look at this sin of David. 
Um, in verse 3, And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Aliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. The sin is a very short thing. Like, it's this brief moment. I think the writer brilliantly uh, does this, that God is like saying, look, this is not where we're going to dwell. And I want to draw your attention to this innocent little thing prior to the sin that we are all in this room masterful at. And David does it perfectly. And if you could recognize this in yourself, again, in addition to the first two points, setting and temptation, maybe there's this moment of, of breaking and halting before the sin. And here's, here's where you find it. Um, what does David do after his temptation? He inquires. Just inquiring. Just asking a question. Is that wrong? Nothing wrong with that. That's not against the law, right? I'm going to ask a question. Now, the problem is if he was asking the question sincerely and the person said, that's Uriah's wife. You know Uriah, a mighty man who's like been with you at battle. He's like one of your best men. He lives four doors down. And you kind of probably knew. Oh, oh my gosh, thank you. I'm so sorry. I was so close of, of committing a sin. Thank you for answering the inquiry. No. The inquiry was useless. He sent for her. But we do this, right? We do little things. You know, I'll just send the text. Just ask the question. You know, I'll just see how they're doing. I don't know. There's a million ways. I have a, a, a friend who was a pastor, and he had to leave the ministry having an affair. And the way his affair took root and, and happened, the person lived across the country. He got on an airplane and flew to have this affair. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of time to go, eh, maybe I'm just going to not do that, you know. So what was the genesis of this? Well, there are two things he told me. One, loneliness. He felt very, very isolated in his ministry. And two, Facebook. She was an old girlfriend. He's on Facebook. They begin to become friends and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Don't hear what I'm not saying. You can use Facebook. You can friend people. There's not a law I'm giving you. But for him... It was not innocent, right? For you, it may be perfectly innocent. For him, it was not. So are we aware of those, those last step moments before the, we take that plunge? David inquires. It seems so healthy, and it's not. What is your way of doing it? Is it just a gentle touch? Maybe you broach a subject you want to gossip about. I'll just bring this up and just kind of see how it settles. Well, now that I've said that much, right? Was that, was that wrong? No. But the next part was, right? So there's always that first step that's innocent for most people, but for us, in that moment, it has an ill motive. And now we come, of course, to the fact that he sins for her, and she comes to him. Um, it, it, had Hollywood gotten a, a hold of this script, it would have gone far differently, right? It would have been this long scene, visual, and, and here I, I just appreciate how succinct it is and how revealing it is. He sends for her, she comes to him, he lays with her, there's a parenthetical statement I'll bring up in a moment, and then she returned to her house, the walk of shame. Can you imagine that, that moment, that morning, if it was a morning, of like, time to go home, 
you know, just the emptiness of shame. How did David feel between that moment and the time that he finds out she's conceived? I, want to do, I do want to draw that parenthetical statement, though. Uh, the, the writer tells us this. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Why does he say that? Why is that written there? I, I think there are three potential reasons they probably all work. One, it, it lets us know she was at the time of a cycle where maybe she could be pregnant, so it's a risky time. I think, I think even more, it lets us know she was not being promiscuous in her bathing. I, think, I don't know if the movies, if it's the Richard Gere David movie, if it's just my memory, but it seems like people want to act like she was being promiscuous. And I think that the narrator is like, no, she was the only place she can bathe, doing a ritualistic thing to, to um, show that she's not only trying to stay clean, has a purpose, she's walking with God as a Jew. So it's clear to me that this is really all on David. And then when you read Nathan, next week we're going to look at Nathan's confrontation of David. It's, it's really a beautiful uh, chapter in the Bible. Nathan uses a metaphor God gives him of sheep, and the sheep is innocent. And that sheep corresponds with her, with Bathsheba. So the point is, the text is not saying she's kind of a seductress. No, all of you, men and women in this room, need to relate to David here. We know what sin looks like. We know how to go after sin. I, I do think, by the way, it does show... Um, kind of in the wake of the hashtag MeToo movement, that when a person in power wants something, they can take it. Sexual abuse, abuse victims often feel horrible shame because they felt complicit in the process, and they're not, right? And in the same way, um, here, it really is, it seems to, there's no way she could have avoided this, right, without... Who knows what would have happened? So I just want that to be said. We're looking at this through the lens of David, and we see the sin. And, you know, we've defined sin. I'm not going to sit here and list the seven deadly sins or anything like that, but I want to now spend the rest of our time on the aftermath because the majority of this passage deals with the fallout. I mean, and it's, it's awful. It feels a little bit like a, um, well, let's start with, let me just recap what happens. Remember, so she says she's pregnant. David's thinking, oh, how can I get Uriah to be considered the one, you know? So brings Uriah back from the fighting. Uriah, go, you know, go to your family, go to your wife, go to your house. Doesn't do it. Uriah is righteous. He's like, never. The men are fighting. The ark's in a tent. I am sitting on the steps. And David's like, oh, why does everybody have to be godly, you know? So he gets a new plan. Okay, hang out here. First, he tries to get him drunk. Still doesn't work. Finally, he just gives him a letter and says, take it back to the front line. And that letter is his death sentence. And he takes it back. And I'm going to be honest. This is the first time it occurred to me when I heard Abby reading it. So, uh, but it does feel to me a little bit mafia-like. So David goes, or uh, Uriah goes back, hands it to Joab. Joab's like, I'm taking out David's dirty laundry right here. And then someone else dies, right? A servant of the house of David dies. And Joab says, tell David, Uriah is dead too. It's almost like Joab got in on the action. You know, we're, while we're just killing our enemies, I got one. It feels like one sin just starts to take off into a mafia-looking hitman rage where finally David's like, that's okay. Things like this happen. Blessings on you. Evil, hardened heart. That's the aftermath. 
And there are two properties of sin I want to point out as we move forward. One is guilt and one is pollution. Guilt is, a part, is, is, is the declaration, right? If you're in a courtroom and you've done something, whether small or large, and the judge says to you, guilty. Oh, read the wrong one. Innocent. What just happened? You went from dread to, oh, good, excitement. Nothing is different about your life. Nothing's different about what you've done. It's just the proclamation, right? Pollution is all the stuff that happens because of what you've done. Most of us, I think, especially if we've been around grace a long time, we we grasp this concept of Jesus forgiving us and our guilt is removed. At least we say we do. I think where we might struggle and we need to continue to remind ourselves is there is pollution. Here's an illustration that... um, just humor me. You're in your first week on a job. You're a trash truck driver, okay? All these rules. You're just learning how to do everything. You pull back into the garage, and your manager walks out and says, I've got some bad news. You left the back of your truck opened, and that is against the rules. Like That's like a two-strike-you're-out thing. But you're in your first week, so guess what? No big deal. You're pardoned. <sighs> Let's go on in and have lunch, right? You're pardoned. Guilt is removed. It's not going to go in your record. But guess what's leading out the garage all the way through the whole route? Trash laying everywhere. Who's going to deal with that? There's pollution as well. And so for David, it's not just the guilt of having sin, but, but it's the result of his sin. Uh, your, uh, Bathsheba is pregnant, right? And, and, and worse, then David decides to become a murderer. And that seems to lead, lead even Joab into murder. And it goes on and on and on. Until we come to this place at the end of chapter 12, well, not the end, in the middle, where David's been confronted, right? And God says to him in verse 13, I, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. He's finally come face to face with what he's done. And listen to what the Lord says. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Your guilt is removed completely taken away. Hallelujah, David would respond. But then he says this, verse 14, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Boom. And next week we'll know there's a lot more. that his health, For the rest of his reign will be warfare. His own son... Absalom revolts against him. This sin is the turning point of his kingdom, and it's the downfall of his kingdom because there is pollution in sin. Are you aware of that pollution? What do we do with that? Well, unfortunately, it's hard. This is a negative discussion, I know that. But recently we had a positive discussion. Remember when David wanted to build a house for God. I want to build you a temple. I want to build you something. And God said, I'm going to build you a house. It's going to be a dynasty. Your offspring is going to build a temple. Solomon? David had... <laughs> Time out. Okay, let me get this straight. I'm going to have an affair. That child's going to pass away. But I'm going to marry that woman because I killed her husband. We're going to have a son. And he's going to be like this amazing king who's going to build your temple? 
Yeah. See, I really, really want you to dread the pollution of your sin. I desperately do. But now I want you to go, however, however, somehow, in God's sovereign majesty, what you intended for evil, God intends for glory. And I think the number one reason we don't like to look at our sin and look at our past is because we have this thought of like a choose-your-own-adventure. You know, I was going great, and then I did this, And so no matter, even if my guilt's been removed and Jesus loves me, if I call that sin, then everything else, like that child's beautiful. I love that child. Or that career led to this career, even though I shouldn't have quit that or done that or any number of things. We we tend to think everything from that moment on is tanked because that was a sinful moment. And no, it's, it's unbelievably amazing how you can both say, that is sin, nevertheless, God intended it for his glory. You get to the genealogy of Matthew. Uh, So I told you a couple weeks ago, it says the son of David. Well, it goes on with more genealogy. Abraham, the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah. And it goes through all of these men until it comes to um, a few women, which is amazing. Right, the father of Boaz by Rahab. She's a hero. Right? And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Jesus coming through this sin. So what do you do? You rejoice that you have a savior. You have a God who loves you so much that you are now free to actually look at your life, look at your story, and go, I, this is how I sin. This is what I've done, and repent. You can look at the back of things you've done years ago that you've been reluctant to call sin and say, that was sin, and repent. You're already forgiven if you're in Christ. You're in Christ. It's not for you. David didn't send Nathan. God didn't send Nathan to David because God didn't know. He sent Nathan because David wasn't admitting it. And that's where you grow. When you can begin to embrace the fact that Jesus uses even your broken places. Okay? But furthermore, because I can go there and look at the anatomy of not only David's sin, but the anatomy of my sin, right? Now I can begin to avoid the problems that come from my sin. So what I want to do, because we've been, you know, it's kind of everyone's kind of been, I want us to go around and name our sin. You go first. No, I'm kidding. Does that make sense? I hope you're encouraged. It's a hard topic. Uh, we like to get away from it in our modern culture, even though there's more sin in our world than we ever think we've ever seen, although nothing changes, etc. Let us be people who go in to our stories and examine in detail the anatomy of our own sin that we may grow in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, you are perfect. You did not sin. And yet, even in your lineage, there was things like this sin with David and Bathsheba. And Lord, there is nothing but disgrace for that sin. And yet, somehow, because of your majesty and because we are fallen people, 
you made that opportunity, that you made that sin beautiful. Not the actual sin, but the fruit. The fruit that is Solomon and later you, Jesus, coming through your mother. So Lord, help us to be able, because of your love, your care, our guiltlessness in you, help us be able to name sin as both evil and yet part of our story that we may grow. And also, and more importantly, help us, Father, in real time, with temptation, and with any kind of desire to move toward a sinful action, help us to learn to fight and flee and run to you for mercy. Amen.